Welcome to Common Sense Institute's Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Megan Garn, and I'm the Director of Operations with Common Sense Institute. If you've been enjoying this content, I encourage you to subscribe to our e-newsletter, the Common Sense Digest, so you can stay up to date with important news and policy happenings. We feature our research, upcoming events, job openings, and more. You can subscribe at www.commonsenseinstitute.co.org. And now, here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of CSI. Thank you for joining us today. You've heard us talk about housing affordability on this podcast before. but today's episode, we'll be diving into a statewide ballot measure to address specific elements of this growing economic challenge for Colorado. Proposition 123 is being proposed to the state and for voters to decide on, and it's titled, Dedicate Revenue for Affordable Housing, unquote which will appear before the Colorado voters this fall. I'm joined by CSI's housing fellow, Peter Lafari, and CSI Vice President of Policy and Research, Chris Brown. This proposition will be one of four ballot issues that CSI features in its upcoming 2022 ballot guide. Peter, Chris, welcome back. It's great to have you guys back on the microphone. Great to be back. Good to see you, Earl. Thank you, Earl. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. It's great to have both of you here. Proposition 123, what problem is it trying to solve and how big is that problem? You know, Earl, it was about a year ago we sat together and discussed uh, our previous report with my co-fellow Evan Lim, and we described the the broken housing value chain and its uh, debilitating impacts on our ability to provide housing for our growing population so that our state can remain uh, competitive uh, in with our economic development and the ability for Coloradans to thrive. And so this measure uh, is looking to meet that moment head on. And uh, our last quarterly report from the Institute in reference to housing affordability clearly uh, laid out the stark challenges that face Coloradans in this regard. So you know, we have an estimated unit shortfall, housing unit shortfall between 93,000 all the way up to some estimates at 260. 16,000 units, the fluctuations in demand based off of pandemic behaviors uh, that kind of caught us off guard uh, as an industry and as as lawmakers uh, have really exasperated these pressure points that have driven us to this unit shortfall. And so is that all affordable housing unit shortfall or is that total units uh, shortfall for the state regardless of income? It's it's total unit shortfall, but really where we're seeing the acute challenge is workforce housing down to what we consider deeply affordable housing, capital A affordable housing. And what shortfall is that? So that shortfall um, for folks in for Coloradans earning fifty percent of area median income and less, it's it's last identified at about one hundred forty two thousand units. One hundred forty two out of the possible two hundred high site. It, it it certainly is where folks are spending more than thirty percent of their income. No, I appreciate the yeah. the mag- yeah. the the, uh, the mechanics of the thirty percent for housing costs and all that. That astonishes me. Yeah, and, and Chris has some numbers that he can share about the home ownership gap. And again, these are estimates, and, and uh, this is pulled off of census data that's a bit aged from 2020. And so, you know, the, the gap could be even wider. Uh, but ultimately, at this point in time, we're bleeding from all elements of the housing continuum outside of the most very high income earners in Colorado. Okay, so Proposition 123 
is coming before us to help us solve this particular shortage in affordable housing, which could be 140,000 units. What is Proposition 123? So Prop 123 asks Coloradans to divert one-tenth of one percent of federal taxable revenue uh, that is, so it's not a tax increase. Uh, So it asks us to uh, divert that one-tenth of one percent from the state's general fund to fund affordable housing programs. And the way that it does that is it looks at for rent as well as for sale uh, within an affordability construct that uh, that we can share. And so Ultimately, I just want to I want to catch up with you here. Sure. So I'm a taxpayer, and I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, wait a minute, uh, affordable housing, we have a problem, and you're telling me I can solve that problem without any further taxes that I may be subject to. The proponents are saying that, right, Earl? <laughs> I think that that's the the three hundred million dollar question is is, and we can talk about this, and we will talk about this later. Is how does that interface with other critical state budgetary needs, right? Because as we're not increasing taxes, we're diverting that from the general fund, which is earmarked towards other needs in a blended strategic. Okay, so something fashion. else is giving in an effort to help us. So the state population will be saying, "I want you to allocate a certain percent of the." annual general fund monies that are available to housing. Out of our entire pie, yes. Out of our entire pie. Yes, let's let's dedicate a certain amount, that one-tenth of one percent. And, and, you know, I think the running theory amongst the proponents is to paraphrase essentially to say is that housing is the foundational need. And if we invest in housing, it will have compounding positive impacts on other segments of our economy, which uh, suffer when Coloradans are struggling to be able to pay their rent. And so that's the big question. It's a big bet. And uh, we're, we're in our report, we ask the JBC to monitor that and to honor the people's investment and ensure that the return on that said investment is commensurate with what we're dedicating and to make sure that it interfaces with those other needs in a way that is not uh, uh, detrimental to our suite of basic needs as Coloradans from K-12 to infrastructure uh, to uh, a number of needs that that are going to be interfacing with this measure's budgetary allocation. Okay. Chris, I'm going to ask you the question about... uh we talked about the source of funding. So what are we talking about in the dollar amount that might be allocated to this one-tenth of one percent of the federal income that uh, we Coloradoans in aggregate have? What are we talking about dollar amount? And Peter referred to some kind of a trade-off. Give me a little bit of a better sense of the trade-off. And is Tabor involved in this? In the first full year, the measure, the fiscal note uh, that is going before voters suggests that this fund will be transferred about $290 million, almost $300 million in the first full year. That will grow over time as federal taxable income grows. Your question about Tabor is relevant. And we just experienced, all Coloradans just received, it was a $750 check through the mechanism of our Tabor refunds uh, we are in a position, the state is in a position for the, at least the next two years and maybe in future years as well, but at least through the current projections that we are going to be facing uh, further or sustained Tabor surpluses and the need to refund dollars through Tabor. This measure would transfer these dollars to this fund and exempt them from the Tabor cap. So in effect, it reduces future Tabor refunds to Coloradans 
Now, wait a in minute. Years, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought, we have a surplus. I, wait a minute. I, I was under the impression I'm not going to have. So I, I'm losing a refund I could possibly be getting in future years with this one-tenth of 1%, one if I remember correctly. Is that correct? That's and it's, correct. It's, and it's $290 million the first time around. That's your that's, estimate? That's correct. Now, wait. I did some quick math in preparation for you guys today. And I'm saying $290 million. If I had uh, uh, $250,000 or $150,000 or $250,000 uh, housing unit, that's not very many houses, guys, compared to the 140000 shortfall we have. In fact, over a 10-year period of time, I haven't even nibbled away at it. I'm talking about 20 or 30 housing units over a 10-year period of time at that kind of a cost basis. Explain to me... Chris, again, how this is going to solve the housing unit? Are we going to have all apartments and not housing units per se? We can probably double or triple that, but that still doesn't solve the problem, Chris. I guess two points that I'll make, and I think Peter could have some great insights into this as well. But one is that as the measure and as the proponents have talked about, the funds that would be allocated through this would be coupled, leveraged, combined with significant other dollars that already exist. So you where would, do the dollars exist? Those dollars already exist in federal state allocations. They would also leverage private dollars that would and so these dollars could just sort of improve affordability incrementally to where they meet ah, some of these guidelines. So if I'm one of those folks then I might have this might help me out as far as Cost, but I would still get maybe a mortgage to buy a property uh, if I wanted to buy the property. So I'd still have to finance part of it, and the private enterprise somehow would come in to look at the possibility of financing part of this. That's right. And I want to turn over to Peter, who understands this you know, intimately on you know, working in this space on a daily basis. But what I, the point I think that's really important to make, that, that at least is the way I see it, you know, focus on housing affordability working with Peter and Evelyn in their work last year, talking about the, the development, the value chain, and is that this it will impact you know, a specific segment of the market and a, and a segment of the market that is very difficult or challenged to produce in the current market constraints. But to your question, is this really the solution or scalable to the broad problem of affordability that we have and being able to create and build the product that is being demanded, it doesn't. It does not completely address the mechanisms that I think need to change that will get us there. There's some really interesting pieces of this measure that do start to address the housing development cycle, specifically in the permitting that I'd like to get into. But there are other broader reforms that are needed that these the the, the subsidy, the public subsidy of housing can't fully accomplished. So this is a subsidization to some extent. This is not the entire, these dollars are not the entire cost of developing a housing unit. This is a subsidization to help create something that's economically viable. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, uh, Earl. I, you know, this, is, this is meant to be braided with the existing investments that have come out of the American Rescue Act and other initiatives from the state. But on its own, it is not a panacea that will accomplish what your question first asked. And so 
braided with those other investments and also the unique element of this being a reoccurring uh, investment, whereas the vast majority in 2021 alone, the uh, General Assembly earmarked $1.2 billion uh, for a broad range of affordable housing initiatives up to workforce housing as well. Uh, but those are one-time dollars. And so that's something this proposition has going for it. We need that consistent investment to be able to subsidize, to your point, uh, extreme low-income Coloradans, primarily earning at 60% of, of AMI or below, but most importantly, this measure can do tremendous good for Coloradans earning well, you're below 50%. you talking about people 50%. earning three or $40,000? Correct, okay. yes. As a, as a household unit? It, it, okay. This measure is going to help folks earning, you know, depending on the family size and dynamic, but it's going to help a lot of Main Street workers. It's going to help a lot of uh, first, second-year educators, administrators, you know, the bread and butter of our Colorado communities. This measure is going to help. Um, you know, it's 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 going to drive, uh, if passed and adopted. That's the other big bet the measure makes is that is that it can play a component vital longitudinal part of our overall Colorado housing affordability strategy. But okay, on its own, right. it will not. Let's assume that that we have something like this. How in the world are you going to administer it? And and with all of these other pieces, you're saying that will be a part of extraneous to this, but available to it, and the, the affordable housing. You talked about federal funds. You talked about other state funds. And then how does this money, where does it go? And how does it get administered, Peter? Uh, I'm smiling and, and folks can't can't see it because we're talking here. But, um, you know, this is the big bet of the measure. The measure, the money is important. But the, the, the big gamble of the measure isn't necessarily the money. The first step is, is asking Coloradans to dedicate this revenue, right? We talked about that in the report. The second is to then say, we're not just going to make this available to any developer in any, in any community uh, that has the balance sheet, that has the will, and the technical capacity to deliver homes for Coloradans, be it renter or home ownership. It's requiring local governments to opt in. And to opt in, you have to commit. You've got to belly up to the bar and say, okay, we're going to produce 3% more affordable homes per year uh, than we do currently. Oh, and secondly, we're also going to create a fast-track approval process. So really, when we look at the measure, it's not really about the money in totality. It's about influencing local governments to start to address some of the root cause challenges that have driven the overall value chain uh, to be unsuccessful, as we mentioned earlier. What does that mean? Well, why is it taking more than a year here in Denver, as an example, to approve a uh, finalized development uh, uh, application? Time is money. That is passed on to Coloradans. And so these requirements are essential to the measure's value proposition. And so, um, you know, that's the big question is, and it sets up an uncomfortable reality where Coloradans could vote this measure in, your local community could proportionately support this measure, but if your local government, for any number of reasons, does not believe that they can accomplish what the measure requires, you could be on the outside looking in. So you could be a developer with land in a local community that has a project that uh, is, it could benefit from this funding, but if the local government where your project is located does not see the value or does not believe they can accomplish the required elements, you're not going to be able to access these funds. And so that's a very important topic. 
you know, to, to your to your question, Earl, is is what about capacity and the ability for the triumvirate there? The it, it goes through the. This is another interesting element of the measure. I want to stop you there because I want to go back to something that. I'm a little bit, this doesn't seem natural to me. I have to, you know, full disclosure for everybody listening, you know, a banker, I'm a credit committee of the bank, and we do real estate and real estate development. And so I'm sitting here saying, wait a minute, the initiator of this now becomes the community. And are you talking about the county commissioners? Are you talking about uh, what entity are you talking about that now has this new power for community development? Who are we talking about? Well, the measure first asked Coloradans to dedicate this one-tenth of one percent of federal revenue. Then if that passes, the measure then requires or offers the opportunity for local governments, counties, and municipalities to opt in. Who are we talking about? Are we talking about the county commissioners? Correct. County commissioners. County commissioners. So all of a sudden— City council members. City— Okay, are we talking about city council or are we talking about county commissioners? What are we talking they about? They both can apply, uh, can, they both can opt into the funds individually. So Do if they you have are to county. Can coordinate their efforts or can one county commissioner or submitted commissioner have different. Uh, uh, requests for different uh, developments. So if, if we're a county commissioner, if we're a co- uh, county commissioners, we would be voting to opt into the measure to access the funds specifically for projects that are located within our unincorporated territorial boundaries. Got it. If we're a city, same thing with the city and city council. So you can, uh, okay, so the city and then the county and and so the three percent applies to each to the city and to the county Within the territorial boundaries that you're correct. talking about. But they have to initiate this by designating uh, certain properties set aside, and that they will have this fast track procedure. Correct. In place. Correct. Okay. And then once they initiate and agree to this fast track procedure, does a does a developer have to approach them, or can they go out and select a developer? How does the process work, or does it does it matter? I think and, but, so uh, the measure provides interesting opportunities for things as land banking, and it looks to position local governments uh, to be able to uh, facilitate environments where they can accomplish their 3% growth targets. And so I would imagine that many communities are going to go after that uh, in their own unique ways, uh, uh, which, which, could be both good or it could be bad. And one of the things that we are recommending in the report, Earl, is to drive greater consistency and clarity through regional uh, fast-track approval consortiums, right? And so that, there's, so that there's consistency and clarity for the public, for developers. But ultimately, we could see, imagine 50 different local governments in Colorado uh, want to opt into this measure. And as it's constructed, we could see 50 unique fast-track approval processes uh, because there is no requirement within the measure that local governments share any of these policies and procedures. And so really what it all is... all of them have their own zoning requirements? They abso- and their own planning they absolutely requirements? Do. They absolutely and do. The uniqueness of each community would have to be expressed in whatever they submitted for a project. So if somebody said it's going to be total electrification, uh, whereas somebody else says whatever 
you can have natural gas as well as any other source of energy power. So be it. So there's, there's, it's whatever is unique to the community will be the standards by which the buildings will be built. That's correct. This is this this measure says nothing, nor does it require local governments to address their land use planning and zoning. So that fifteen to twenty million dollars of, uh, and sometimes thirty thousand dollars of upfront costs that can be associated with just trying to, to meet the local standards doesn't evaporate. Not unless a local government dis- decides to reform those ordinances in support of the measure, um, which re- will remain to be seen. Okay, so still you've got a significant part of any housing project or unit project is going to have that upfront cost that we're already dealing with, which is causing our housing prices to go up a lot as it is. Correct. Okay, so let's assume, Peter and Chris, that, that uh, they've set aside the properties, and let's assume that a builder has come in, whomever it might be, and has submitted something, uh, do they submit it to the uh, to the county commissioner and the in uh, the city council, and they say, yeah, we like this. Well, so what? What happens then? Well, uh, it's going to exist. The, the development projects within local governments will exist as they do today. And, um, at, at, but this financing is there at the state level, so how do they so, get it? So in theory how this works, Earl, is that the local government, a city council, opts into the program. They will direct their staff to create uh, these fast-track approval policies which could formulate in any number of different ways. It's unclear as to how they will actually be stood up. But what would happen then is that developers and the uh, political subdivisions, active developers, both um, nonprofit and for-profit, will then be able to access this fund through either the Colorado Housing Finance Authority, who will receive a percentage of the funding uh, via OEDIT, and or the Department of Housing, uh, who will be the designee for the re- about 60% of the funds. And so depending upon your use, uh, because this also funds programs, it also funds um, housing stability, uh, eviction prevention, it, it really hits on every element of the housing continuum in need. And so depending upon your project, uh, you could be a nonprofit that uh, wants to serve individuals facing eviction. Um, and if you access this fund, you would go to the appropriate administrator and say that my local government has opted in, I'm eligible to access this fund, um, and then you will be able to apply for those funds accordingly. And so it's going to op- it's going to really function very much as, as, our, as we function currently, where you're chasing after certain sources based off of the type of developments that you are endeavoring to create and who you are serving. The measure requires that you serve a certain AMI, as we discussed previously. And so once the, the local government opts in, well, you're really AMI, going to fund... AMI is what again? The AMI for home ownership is 100% of AMI and below. Uh, and the AMI... A, AMI uh, stands for what? Uh, area median income. Thanks, okay, sir. thank you. Yeah. And so, um, so once that happens, uh, you, you're going to be in your normal um, housing development entitlement process based off of the local government your project is located. I guess I don't appreciate all of the complexity of of building in today's environment. Uh, it you know I I look at uh, various things. I know you have to go to the county commissioner or the city council and and deal with the planning board and you submit your plans and all that, and then you go to the bank and you say, hey, guess what? I'm going to put my land or I'm going to put so much money in my land and I need financing to build this. Now I heard you say that. 
it, you not only do what I described with the city planning and the commissioners and all that, it, but now you just don't go to the bank and say, I, I want to build this. You now go to a state agency and you submit your plans to the state agency or you just have a request that has been approved by the city council and they, in essence, just say, okay. Or how do they select one versus the other? How does the allocation of funds occur? As you fill out your capital stack uh, as a developer, right, Earl, and so you have your sources and uses, uh, developers uh, could use this fund if, the op- if, if their project is in a local government that has opted in to source financing uh, to be able to generally uh, close the gap, right, use, use this funding to be able to pencil out a project. And so it's going to function very much like— Do they pay interest like- or is this free money? The measure uh, stipulates that if you are a for-profit affordable developer, you will receive a loan. Uh, that will be below the prevailing um, uh, interest rates that you could receive from the street, from the market. Uh, if you are a nonprofit or a local government, a political subdivision, you, uh, you are eligible f- to receive grant funding. So it will depend on your designation. So grant funding is another way of saying free money if, if you use it for a certain period of time or forgive the... Uh Correct. Forgive you, pay and me all, back. And all of the projects that receive funding from this measure need to agree to be affordable in perpetuity. That's another requirement affordable of the measure. Affordable in perpetuity. So how do you build a house that's affordable for in perpetuity, in perpetuity if I own the house? Well, uh, it could be via a community land trust model uh, where there's a shared equity uh, dynamic where you uh, are able to receive the uh, homeownership unit uh, for below uh, prevailing market uh, valuation if you agree to sell it at a, a below market valuation and receive a reduced return. That is one way it could work on the homeownership side. I will share that the measure really is focused on providing uh, down payment assistance uh, for for future homeowners uh, in Colorado, it also permits home ownership development via land banking and community land trusts. The way the measure is structured, it will drive uh, primarily the creation of multifamily assets for rent. No offense, Peter, uh, Chris, I'd love to have you step in here, but it seems to me you've created a whole new industry. I mean, if you know how it works and you know how the financing works, guess what? As a developer, you can do okay. But if you don't have that and you don't have that skill set, what you need to build, the conventional builder of the past, is this is something that could very easily make their life miserable. <laughs> Am I missing something, Chris? I, I would be the outsider here in terms of how that you know, would work. I, I, I think that the general you know, observation from this conversation and, 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 and looking at the measure and working with Peter on this is that this is increasing the amount of public funding that would go through as grant funding or as cheaper loans, but it's, it's significantly increasing the amount of public subsidy, public dollars within the housing development. And it makes a, a very aspirational ask of municipalities that want to opt in, in my opinion, uh, which we haven't really touched on. But in order to opt into the funds, not only do you as a jurisdiction, come up with these fast track permitting protocols, but also have to establish a plan and be held accountable to a 3% 
growth target. You will increase the amount of units at these affordability targets for by three. 3% every year. For three years. For, for, Forever? That's the initial, yeah. You, initially three year three opt, yeah. Three, yeah, you, yeah, you opt in for a three-year period. I read your report. <laughs> so so that, that, is, that is significant. I mean, it, you know, if we look at uh, the overall housing growth rate that we've seen in the last several years, we probably haven't even hit 2%. When you look at the, the, the level of rental property price point or for sale price point that we have, we've actually seen a decrease in that housing stock and not an increase. So getting to 3% is very aspirational in my, in, in, by, by our calculations. And it's, and it's a major challenge. And so these dollars will help facilitate that. And I, whether, whether developers are, are savvy or will now finally have some of that difference to make these projects actually possible, I think that is the challenge. But the scale of this could be, could be significant. Yeah, and I'll just say, you know, the measure uh, attempts to create, I don't want to say cheap money, but the cost of this money uh, should be able to beat many other existing gap financing vehicles that we use as affordable housing developers. The cost of capital is what you're referring to. Correct, the cost of capital. And so if that stays true, that it, the measure, uh, it's, it's a strength of the measure. And as it's constructed currently, there's a high probability that will occur. To your question earlier, the administration of the funds now now starts to come into question because if the administration is disaggregated, if the administration of the funds is uh, delayed or it takes a long time to get your funds from either of the two entities, it could start to increase the cost of capital, which will decrease the attractiveness of the measure. And so I wouldn't say that this creates a whole new industry, Earl. What I would say is that if it operates as intended, it will become the most desired gap financing that we, in Colorado for for affordable housing projects. And as such, it will be synergistic and it will drive value. Uh, but that is in a best case scenario in this. And we have to understand how the administrators are going to be able to handle this significant influx of capital, especially considering the Department of House, the Division of Housing um, has increased their funding uh, by three times. Uh, uh, this would increase their funding by three times over 2021 levels. And so that's asking a lot of our Division of Housing, and we're going to have to provide them the resources to be able to accomplish what the measure requires. Peter, I've had a chance to listen to you speak on this topic before, and I think the last time I heard you was at, at an open forum in at the University of Denver. And with you, you had a state legislator there from some of the mountain communities, and somebody challenged that individual about using some of the state funds that are currently available for affordable housing. And their response was people had thought about it, but the cost of trying to access those funds and then reporting on those funds, on how the use of those funds were being meeting the standards that were being required was too onerous for the developer. And so they said even though the cost of capital is less, they would prefer to try to use more conventional means. No offense, Peter, but this just sounds like a, you know, you know, a spaghetti farm here. I've got all sorts of things running through it and things I have to follow up on and if I know how to, to work my way through, then I'm okay. But tell me how I'm wrong. 
You know, I think you know, with all with all government entities, bureaucracies, the challenge, right, is to is to serve the customer, right. And to your point, if we do not center the process and the systems with the customer in mind, we're going to create detrimental policies and procedures that impact our customer uh, in a negative manner. And so that risk that you share is is omnipresent, uh, and that's where Does we're going to. Does it go away with this legislation, or is it just? part of what we're going to be faced with? Well, I think that, you know, by including the Office of Economic uh, and International Development Trade, OEDIT, although OEDIT, as it's structured, may simply be a pass-through, and also including CHAFA, the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, which will receive the money from OEDIT, we've created a fantastic AB construct where we can, if we desire and we hold our entities accountable, all right, we can start to drive continuous improvement to buttress against the very real risk that you articulated, Earl. And so um, as we mentioned in the measure, we've recommended um, you know, a, a periodic fund analysis uh, to ensure that, that there are opportunities for uh, transparency and continuous improvement, because uh, as the measure currently stands, there, that's not, that's not uh, a requirement. And we also have to ensure that... So you're talking about an audit or a public accounting of how well is this, Correct. this uh, Correct. proposition actually being... Being carried out in success of uh, Correct. success. Correct, and okay. we're going to be able to, uh, you know, to evaluate differing of any differing of performance between the two administrating entities. And so uh, that gives us an opportunity to apply what is working well to both entities and look towards uh, increased reciprocity between the two because many of the projects that that wind up being beneficiaries of this funding will have funding coming from both entities regardless because both of those entities in Colorado hold the lion's share of financing and funding to develop affordable housing. And so that is an opportunity that we shouldn't overlook and and we should invest in continuous improvement to ensure that we're not creating redundancy and driving away uh, willing entrepreneurs who are looking to attack the affordable housing challenge with us. Chris, um, I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second. We passed legislation in 2018 that had to do with PARA that said we're going to put $225 million a year aside for underfunding in PARA. People that listen to this podcast have probably heard us talk about that before. Well, this says, hey, we're going to have this money set aside. And so what stops the legislature from violating this particular proposition set aside and, you know, saying, oh, they're extenuating circumstances, so this year it won't be 290 or whatever that will set aside, uh, but we'll make it up sometime in the future. Or how do we handle that? Because some of us are kind of saying, if we're going to do this, let's make certain that we have the money there consistently because people, they're building and they're making plans and they're hiring people to build these houses. And if it's not there and we can't count on it, you know, that's not a very good program. So help me out. Well, I think you highlight one of the one of the risks that we articulate in the report that we have, you know, a couple recommendations that we make for how this uh, measure, if passed, could be and should be modified in state statute in a future legislative session, uh, specifically around this question of the budget risk. Your question on para is very is very appropriate, where legislators required to make these these annual commitments did not make that commitment, which puts para at further risk. Here, 
what the, the, the funds that get transferred out of the general fund to this new uh, housing fund, A, become exempt from TABOR. Uh, the measure says that they have to be used for the, fund, the, the purpose of intended in the fund, but that can be changed. Those funds could be swept at some point. We make two you know, recommendations broadly. One is that there needs to be a mechanism which monitors you know, sort of recurring fund balance to ensure that if municipalities are not opting in, if the amount of development that can draw down these funds that's transferred in is not occurring, that there that that less money gets transferred into the, the fund to begin with, so that there's not just an accumulating fund balance that then is more enticing for future legislatures to sweep for other purposes back to the general fund for so other purposes. So less money is taken in, but you're still having a tax. Where does it go? Well, the tax the taxes be there. This is money that would be in the general fund to be spent so through the general fund. fund. You just wouldn't try to sweep it into there. Okay, I got right. It. And 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 then that leads into the second recommendation, which is if it does get swept, if it does get put back into the general fund, that it loses its Tabor exempt status. So, oh. so we should have two two protections there uh, on on mitigating some of that budgetary risk that I think is. Uh, would be very prudent. Well, I, I hear both of you saying, hey, we understand this is really worthwhile. We need to do something. But there are things that could be done to make this even uh, easier to understand, uh, easier to implement. In fact, probably more efficient in doing it to, to get to the end point, or as I referred to, that mark on the wall. And you said 140,000 units, Peter. Are you suggesting the proposition, if it's passed, these changes could be made? Or are you suggesting that uh, the proposition, if it's not passed, these changes should be made and another proposition put forward? What are the choices I, as a voter, have? I'd say both. I mean, I don't know your thoughts, Peter. I'd say oh, so. I'd you can change that. You can make or, these I, changes if the proposition's passed. Well, anything can be changed in statute, right? So in the state, oh, statute. so the state so would, would have to legislatively make the changes. Correct. Correct. Yeah, we okay. have to see further legislative, state legislative changes that we we do think would be necessary to to mitigate some of this risk. I think make this more workable. One of the main. So to your, to your second point, which is if this does not pass, would there be recommendations to take elements uh, in further legislation? And, and while we don't really touch on that, I think an important part of understanding this measure is, okay, you have additional dollars flowing to more development, more opportunity for creating more, more development. But the other piece is this reform in the permitting process that that could be expanded, we think should be expanded, standardized, and has the opportunity, if implemented appropriately and is scaled, to impact the broader housing development market. So to the extent that we offer ideas on how the budget risk could be mitigated, we also offer some ideas on how these elements that address the housing construction and permitting process, it really adds uh, significant cost and added time could be improved, and those don't have to be addressed in state legislation. So those are elements that, even if this doesn't pass, are ideas that we're glad are elevated in the conversation, and municipalities could take and run with 
if if they wanted to. So really, you're just saying this is the beginning step in the process. If this proposition is either passed or not passed, there there motion things are in motion that can improve our chances of improving the affordable housing problem we have. Peter, just any closing comments you have with regards to uh, the proposition? I have a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll be mindful of time. And uh, it's been fantastic talking with you today, Earl and Chris, as well. You know, I, I think that um, the status quo is no longer tenable. We're making a big bet. And, you know, as we've talked about before in the past, right, Earl, local control is a highly effective form of local governance that suits us extremely well in a number of elements of our lives. The jury is out on its capacity to be able to meet the moment of our housing uh, needs for Coloradans. And so we're going to see. Uh, we're fixing to find out, as uh, we've heard before, uh, to, to understand if um, these types of interventions are going to serve, uh, suit and serve Coloradans at the level that is required. And so I think that through statutorial changes and if local governments uh, share the audacity of the measure, should it pass uh, and meaningfully look at reforms that don't just benefit necessarily the projects that will come through with funding from from the measure, but really start to ask themselves, well, if we can do this, if we can create a fast track process, um, why are we stopping there? Why don't we expand to um, 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 uh, first-time home buyers, uh, starter homes? Um, how are we looking at our land use planning and zoning methodologies holistically so that we can create a housing market that drives our economic vitality uh, and puts people in positions to accomplish their God-given gifts. Um, so what I would say is that there's tremendous upside to be gleamed from the measure. Uh, should it pass? Should it fail? Uh, I think we could reconstitute it in ways that would address some of the elements that perhaps the gambles didn't pay off, right? This opt-in dynamic you mentioned earlier, right? What happens if no local governments opt in? Well, in theory, the money's going to sit there. Do we think that that's going to happen? No, but disproportionate uh, um, um, distribution of these funds is a, is a very plausible outcome as certain local governments look to have a first mover advantage. Other local governments look to evaluate and analyze those first movers. And so with each and every potential outcome, either the benefits of the measure increase or the, the risks increase. And so what I would say, though, is that um, we have tremendous will uh, across the aisle in Colorado to be able to provide the stability that a home uh, supports to pursue happiness. And so what I would think is that it's in our best interest to test our current methodologies. Uh, I, I believe a cost-benefit analysis, as the Institute does, to evaluate these decision-making uh, uh, dynamics that we've been discussing uh, is, is highly valuable, and it's just been an absolute pleasure to tackle the measure with the Institute and share our findings with you today. Peter, thank you. It seems to me he's left the, the door open for a challenge for you, Chris, and I want to thank you for opening that, and that is to have CSI come back and say, okay, if something like this were passed and all the resources were made available, you know, what is the economic outcome? Can the mark on the wall of 140,000 units really be uh, be accomplished, or are we just kidding ourselves over the next decade that this is uh, maybe just kind of a drop in the ocean? But, uh, Chris, I think the challenge is left to you, and I want to thank both of you. Thank you, Earl. For uh, today's conversation and your insights, and for those of you listening, please uh, look forward to reading the look to the CSI report. It will be out uh, 
very shortly, and I encourage you to read it uh, so you're well prepared for uh, voting on the proposition. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.